Part ten of Lincoln's Yarns and Stories by Alexander K. McClure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part ten. His cabinet chances poor. Mr. Jeriah Bonham, in describing a visit he paid Lincoln at his room in the State House at Springfield, where he found him quite alone, except that two of his children, one of whom was Tad, were with him. The door was open. We walked in and were at once recognized and seated, the two boys still continuing their play about the room. Tad was spinning his top, and Lincoln, as we entered, had just finished adjusting the string for him so as to give the top the greatest degree of force. He remarked that he was having a little fun with the boys. At another time, at Lincoln's residence, Tad came into the room, and putting his hand to his mouth and his mouth to his father's ear, said in a boy's whisper, Ma says come to supper. All heard the announcement, and Lincoln, perceiving this, said, You have heard, gentlemen, the announcement concerning the interesting state of things in the dining-room. It will never do for me, if elected, to make this young man a member of my cabinet, for it is plain he cannot be trusted with secrets of state. The general was headed in. A Union general, operating with his command in West Virginia, allowed himself and his men to be trapped, and it was feared his force would be captured by the Confederates. The president heard the report read by the operator as it came over the wire, and remarked, Once there was a man out west who was heading a barrel, as they used to call it, he worked like a good fellow in driving down the hoops, but just about the time he thought he had the job done, the head would fall in. Then he had to do the work all over again. All at once a bright idea entered his brain, and he wondered how it was he hadn't figured it out before. His boy, a bright, smart lad, was standing by, very much interested in the business, and lifting the young one up, he put him inside the barrel, telling him to hold the head in its proper place while he pounded down the hoops on the sides. This worked like a charm, and he soon had the heading done. Then he realized that his boy was inside the barrel, and how to get him out he couldn't for his life figure out. General Blank is now inside the barrel, headed in, and the job now is to get him out. Sugar-coated Government printer DeFreeze, when one of the president's messages was being printed, was a good deal disturbed by the use of the term sugar-coated, and finally went to Mr. Lincoln about it. Their relations to each other being of the most intimate character, he told the president frankly that he ought to remember that a message to Congress was a different affair from a speech at a mass meeting in Illinois, that the messages became a part of history and should be written accordingly. "'What is the matter now?' inquired the president. "'Why,' said DeFreeze, "'you have used an undignified expression in the message.' And, reading the paragraph aloud, he added, "'I would alter the structure of that if I were you.' "'DeFreeze,' replied the president, "'that word expresses exactly my idea, and I am not going to change it. The time will never come in this country when people don't know exactly what sugar-coated means.' could make rabbit tracks. When a grocery clerk at New Salem, the annual election came around. A Mr. Graham was clerk, but his assistant was absent, and it was necessary to find a man to fill his place. 
lincoln a tall young man had already concentrated on himself the attention of the people of the town and graham easily discovered him asking him if he could write abe modestly replied i can make a few rabbit tracks his rabbit tracks proved to be legible and even graceful he was employed the voters soon discovered that the new assistant clerk was honest and fair and performed his duties satisfactorily and when the work done he began to entertain them with stories they found that their town had made a valuable personal and social acquisition lincoln protected currency issues marshal ward layman was in president lincoln's office in the white house one day and casually asked the president if he knew how the currency of the country was made greenbacks were then under full headway of circulation these bits of paper being the representatives of united states money our currency was the president's answer is made as the lawyers would put it in their legal way in the following manner to wit the official engraver strikes off the sheets passes them over to the register of the currency who after placing his earmarks upon them signs the same the register turns them over to old father spinner who proceeds to embellish them with his wonderful signature at the bottom father spinner sends them to secretary of the treasury chase and he as a final act in the matter issues them to the public as money and may the good lord help any fellow that doesn't take all he can honestly get of them taking from his pocket a five-dollar greenback with a twinkle in his eye the president then said look at spinner's signature was there ever anything like it on earth yet it is unmistakable no one will ever be able to counterfeit it layman then goes on to say but i said you certainly don't suppose that spinner actually wrote his name on that bill do you certainly i do why not queried mr lincoln i then asked how much of this currency have we afloat he remained thoughtful for a moment and then stated the amount i continued how many times do you think a man can write a signature like spinner's in the course of twenty-four hours the beam of hilarity left the countenance of the president at once he put the greenback into his vest pocket and walked the floor after a while he stopped heaved a long sigh and said this thing frightens me he then rang for a messenger and told him to ask the secretary of the treasury to please come over to see him mr chase soon put in an appearance president lincoln stated the cause of his alarm and asked mr chase to explain in detail the operations methods system of checks etc in his office and a lengthy discussion followed president lincoln contending there were not sufficient safeguards afforded in any degree in the money-making department and secretary chase insisting that every protection was afforded he could devise afterward the president called the attention of congress to this important question and devices were adopted whereby a check was put upon the issue of greenbacks that no spurious ones ever came out of the treasury department at least counterfeiters were busy though but this was not the fault of the treasury lincoln's apology to grant general grant is a copious worker and fighter president lincoln wrote to general burnside in july eighteen sixty three but a meagre writer or telegrapher grant never wrote a report until the battle was over 
President Lincoln wrote a letter to General Grant on July 13, 1863, which indicated the strength of the hold the successful fighter had upon the man in the White House. It ran as follows. I do not remember that you and I ever met personally. I write this now as a grateful acknowledgment for the almost inestimable service you have done the country. I write to say a word further. When you first reached the vicinity of Vicksburg, I thought you should do what you finally did, march the troops across the neck, run the batteries with the transports, and thus go below, and I never had any faith, except a general hope, that you knew better than I, that the Yazoo Pass expedition and the like could succeed. When you got below and took Port Gibson, Grand Gulf, and vicinity, I thought you should go down the river and join General Banks and when you turned northward east of big black i feared it was a mistake i now wish to make the personal acknowledgment that you were right and i was wrong lincoln said by jing lincoln never used profanity except when he quoted it to illustrate a point in a story his favorite expression when he spoke with emphasis were by dear and by jing just preceding the civil war he sent ward layman on a ticklish mission to south carolina when the proposed trip was mentioned to secretary seward he opposed it saying mr president i fear you are sending layman to his grave i am afraid they will kill him in charleston where the people are excited and desperate we can't spare layman and we shall feel badly if anything happens to him mr lincoln said in reply i have known layman to be in many a close place and he has never been in one that he didn't get out of somehow by jing i'll risk him go ahead layman and god bless you if you can't bring back any good news bring a palmetto layman brought back a palmetto branch but no promise of peace it tickled the little woman Lincoln had been in the telegraph office at Springfield during the casting of the first and second ballots in the Republican National Convention at Chicago, and then left and went over to the office of the State Journal, where he was sitting, conversing with friends, while the third ballot was being taken. In a few moments came across the wires the announcement of the result. The superintendent of the telegraph company wrote on a scrap of paper, Mr. Lincoln, you are nominated on the third ballot and a boy ran with the message to Lincoln. He looked at it in silence, amid the shouts of those around him. Then, rising and putting it in his pocket, he said quietly, There's a little woman down at our house, would like to hear this. I'll go down and tell her. Shall all fall together. After Lincoln had finished that celebrated speech in Egypt, as a section of southern Illinois was formerly designated, in the course of which he seized Congressman Ficklin by the coat collar and shook him fiercely, he apologized. In return, Ficklin said Lincoln had nearly shaken the democracy out of him. To this, Lincoln replied, well, that reminds me of what Paul said to Agrippa, which, in language and substance, was about this. 
i would to god that such democracy as you folks here in egypt have were not only almost but altogether shaken out of not only you but all that heard me this day and that you would all join in assisting in shaking off the shackles of the bondman by all legitimate means so that this country may be made free as the good lord intended it said ficklin in rejoinder lincoln i remember of reading somewhere in the same book from which you get your agrippa story that paul whom you seem to desire to personate admonished all servants slaves to be obedient to them that are their masters according to the flesh in fear and trembling it would seem that neither our saviour nor paul saw the iniquity of slavery as you and your party do but you must not think that where you fail by argument to convince an old friend like myself and win him over to your heterodox abolition opinions you are justified in resorting to violence such as you practised on me to-day why i never had such a shaking up in the whole course of my life recollect that that good old book that you quote from somewhere says in effect this woe be unto him who goeth to egypt for help for he shall fall the holpen shall fall and they shall all fall together dead dog no cure lincoln's quarrel with shields was his last personal encounter in later years it became his duty to give an official reprimand to a young officer who had been court-martialed for a quarrel with one of his associates the reprimand is probably the gentlest on record quarrel not at all no man resolved to make the most of himself can spare time for personal contention still less can he afford to take all the consequences including the vitiating of his temper and the loss of self-control yield larger things to which you can show no more than equal right and yield lesser ones though clearly your own better give your path to a dog than be bitten by him in contesting for the right even killing the dog would not cure the bite thorough is a good word someone came to the president with a story about a plot to accomplish some mischief in the government lincoln listened to what was a very superficial and ill-formed story and then said there is one thing that i have learned and that you have not it is only one word thorough then bringing his hand down on the table with a thump to emphasize his meaning he added thorough the cabinet was a setting being in washington one day the rev robert collier thought he'd take a look around in passing through the grounds surrounding the white house he cast a glance toward the presidential residence and was astonished to see three pairs of feet resting on the ledge of an open window in one of the apartments of the second story the divine paused for a moment calmly surveyed the unique spectacle and then resumed his walk toward the war department seeing a laborer at work not far from the executive mansion mr collier asked him what it all meant to whom did the feet belong and particularly the mammoth ones you old fool answered the workman that's the cabinet which is a settin and them thar big feet belongs to old abe a bullet through his hat a soldier tells the following story of an attempt upon the life of mr lincoln one night i was doing sentinel duty at the entrance to the soldier's home 
this was about the middle of august eighteen sixty four about eleven o'clock i heard a rifle shot in the direction of the city and shortly afterwards i heard approaching hoof-beats in two or three minutes a horse came dashing up i recognized the belated president the president was bareheaded the president simply thought that his horse had taken fright at the discharge of the firearms on going back to the place where the shot had been heard we found the president's hat it was a plain silk hat and upon examination we discovered a bullet hole through the crown the next day upon receiving the hat the president remarked that it was made by some foolish marksman and was not intended for him but added that he wished nothing said about the matter the president said philosophically i long ago made up my mind that if anybody wants to kill me he will do it besides in this case it seems to me the man who would succeed me would be just as objectionable to my enemies if i have any one dark night as he was going out with a friend he took along a heavy cane remarking good-naturedly mother uh, mrs lincoln hasn't got a notion into her head that i shall be assassinated and to please her i take a cane when i go over to the war department at night when i don't forget it no kind to get to heaven on two ladies from tennessee called at the white house one day and begged mr lincoln to release their husbands who were rebel prisoners at johnson's island one of the fair petitioners urged as a reason for the liberation of her husband that he was a very religious man and rang the changes on this pious plea madam said mr lincoln you say your husband is a religious man perhaps i am not a good judge of such matters but in my opinion the religion that makes men rebel and fight against their government is not the genuine article nor is the religion the right sort which reconciles them to the idea of eating their bread in the sweat of other men's faces it is not the kind to get to heaven on later however the order of release was made president lincoln remarking with impressive solemnity that he would expect the ladies to subdue the rebellious spirit of their husbands and to that end he thought it would be well to reform their religion true patriotism said he is better than the wrong kind of piety the only real peacemaker during the presidential campaign of eighteen sixty four much ill-feeling was displayed by the opposition to president lincoln the democratic managers issued posters of large dimensions picturing the washington administration as one determined to rule or ruin the country while the only salvation for the united states was the election of mcclellan we reproduce one of these eighteen sixty four campaign posters on this page the title of which is the true issue or that's what's the matter the dominant idea or purpose of the cartoon poster was to demonstrate mcclellan's availability lincoln the abolitionist and davis the secessionist are pictured as bigots of the worst sort who were determined that peace should not be restored to the distracted country except upon the lines laid down by them mcclellan the patriotic peacemaker is shown as the man who believed in the preservation of the union above all things a man who had no fads nor vagaries 
this peacemaker mcclellan standing upon the war is a failure platform is portrayed as a military chieftain who would stand no nonsense who would compel mr lincoln and mr davis to cease their quarrelling who would order the soldiers on both sides to quit their bloodletting and send the combatants back to the farm workshop and counting-house and the man whose election would restore order out of chaos and make everything bright and lovely the apple woman's pass one day when president lincoln was receiving callers a buxom irish woman came into the office and standing before the president with her hands on her hips said mr lincoln can't i sell apples on the railroad president lincoln replied certainly madam you can sell all you wish but she said you must give me a pass or the soldiers will not let me president lincoln then wrote a few lines and gave them to her thank you sir god bless you she exclaimed as she departed joyfully split rails by the yard it was in the spring of eighteen thirty that abe lincoln wearing a jean jacket shrunken buckskin trousers a coonskin cap and driving an ox team became a citizen of illinois he was physically and mentally equipped for pioneer work his first desire was to obtain a new and decent suit of clothes but as he had no money he was glad to arrange with nancy miller to make him a pair of trousers he to split four hundred fence rails for each yard of cloth fourteen hundred rails in all abe got the clothes after a while it was three miles from his father's cabin to her woodlot where he made the forest ring with the sound of his axe abe had helped his father plow fifteen acres of land and split enough rails to fence it and he then helped to plow fifty acres for another settler the question of legs whenever people of lincoln's neighborhood engaged in dispute whenever a bet was to be decided when they differed on points of religion or politics when they wanted to get out of trouble or desired advice regarding anything on the earth below it or above it or under the sea they went to abe two fellows after a hot dispute lasting some hours over the problem as to how long a man's legs should be in proportion to the size of his body stamped into lincoln's office one day and put the question to him lincoln listened gravely to the arguments advanced by both contestants spent some time in reflecting upon the matter and then turning around in his chair and facing the disputants delivered his opinion with all the gravity of a judge sentencing a fellow being to death this question has been a source of controversy he said slowly and deliberately for untold ages and it is about time it should be definitely decided it has led to bloodshed in the past and there is no reason to suppose it will not lead to the same in the future after much thought and consideration not to mention mental worry and anxiety it is my opinion all side issues being swept aside that a man's lower limbs in order to preserve harmony of proportion should be at least long enough to reach from his body to the ground too many widows already a union officer in conversation one day told this story the first week i was with my command there were twenty-four deserters sentenced by court-martial to be shot and the warrants for their execution were sent to the president to be signed he refused 
i went to washington and had an interview i said mr president unless these men are made an example of the army itself is in danger mercy to the few is cruelty to the many he replied mr general there are already too many weeping widows in the united states for god's sake don't ask me to add to the number for i won't do it god needed that church in the early stages of the war after several battles had been fought union troops seized a church in alexandria virginia and used it as a hospital a prominent lady of the congregation went to washington to see mr lincoln and try to get an order for its release have you applied to the surgeon in charge at alexandria inquired mr lincoln yes sir but i can do nothing with him was the reply well madam said mr lincoln that is an end of it then we put him there to attend to just such business and it is reasonable to suppose that he knows better what should be done under the circumstances than i do the lady's face showed her keen disappointment in order to learn her sentiment mr lincoln asked how much would you be willing to subscribe toward building a hospital there she said that the war had depreciated southern property so much that she could afford to give but little this war is not yet over said mr lincoln and there will likely be another fight very soon that church may be very useful in which to house our wounded soldiers it is my candid opinion that god needs that church for our wounded fellows so madam i can do nothing for you the man down south an amusing instance of the president's preoccupation of mind occurred at one of his levees when he was shaking hands with a host of visitors passing him in a continuous stream an intimate acquaintance received the usual conventional handshake and salutation but perceiving that he was not recognized kept his ground instead of moving on and spoke again when the president roused to a dim consciousness that something unusual had happened perceived who stood before him and seizing his friend's hand shook it again heartily saying how do you do how do you do excuse me for not noticing you i was thinking of a man down south the man down south was general w t sherman then on his march to the sea couldn't let go the hog when governor custer of pennsylvania described the terrible butchery at the battle of fredericksburg mr lincoln was almost broken-hearted the governor regretted that his description had so sadly affected the president he remarked i would give all i possess to know how to rescue you from this terrible war then mr lincoln's wonderful recuperative powers asserted themselves and this marvelous man was himself lincoln's whole aspect suddenly changed and he relieved his mind by telling a story this reminds me governor he said of an old farmer out in illinois that i used to know he took it into his head to go into hog raising he sent out to europe and imported the finest breed of hogs he could buy the prize hog was put in a pen and the farmer's two mischievous boys james and john were told to be sure not to let it out but james the worst of the two let the brute out the next day the hog went straight for the boys and drove john up a tree then the hog went for the seat of james trousers and the only way the boy could save himself was by holding on to the hog's tail the hog would not give up his hunt nor the boy his hold 
after they had made a good many circles around the tree the boy's courage began to give out and he shouted to his brother i say john come down quick and help me let go this hog now governor that is exactly my case i wish someone would come and help me to let the hog go the cabinet lincoln wanted judge joseph gillespie of chicago was a firm friend of mr lincoln and went to springfield to see him shortly before his departure for the inauguration it was said judge gillespie lincoln's gethsemane he feared he was not the man for the great position and the great events which confronted him untried in national affairs unversed in international diplomacy unacquainted with the men who were foremost in the politics of the nation he groaned when he saw the inevitable war of the rebellion coming on it was in humility of spirit that he told me he believed that the american people had made a mistake in selecting him in the course of our conversation he told me if he could select his cabinet from the old bar that had traveled the circuit with him in the early days he believed he could avoid war or settle it without a battle even after the fact of secession but mr lincoln said i those old lawyers are all democrats i know it was his reply but i would rather have democrats whom i know than republicans i don't know ready for butcher day leonard sweat told this eminently characteristic story i remember one day being in his room when lincoln was sitting at his table with a large pile of papers before him and after a pleasant talk he turned quite abruptly and said get out of the way sweat tomorrow is butcher day and i must go through these papers and see if i cannot find some excuse to let those poor fellows off the pile of papers he had were the records of courts-martial of men who on the following day were to be shot the bad bird and the mudsill it took quite a long time as well as the lives of thousands of men to say nothing of the cost in money to take richmond the capital city of the confederacy in this cartoon taken from frank leslie's illustrated newspaper of february twenty one eighteen sixty three jeff davis is sitting upon the secession eggs in the richmond nest smiling down upon president lincoln who is up to his waist in the mud of difficulties the president finally waded through the morass in which he had become immersed got to the tree climbed its trunk reached the limb upon which the bad bird had built its nest threw the mother out destroyed the eggs of secession and then took the nest away with him leaving the bad bird without any home at all the bad bird had its laugh first and the last laugh belonged to the mudsill as the cartoonist was pleased to call the president of the united states it is true that the president got his clothes and hat all covered with mud but as the job was a dirty one as well as one that had to be done the president didn't care he was able to get another suit of clothes as well as another hat but the bad bird couldn't and didn't get another nest the laugh was on the bad bird after all gave the soldier his fish once when asked what he remembered about the war with great britain lincoln replied oh nothing but this i had been fishing one day and caught a little fish which i was taking home i met a soldier on the road and having been always told at home that we must be good to the soldiers i gave him my fish this must have been about eighteen fourteen 
when abe was five years of age a peculiar lawyer lincoln was once associate counsel for a defendant in a murder case he listened to the testimony given by witness after witness against his client until his honest heart could stand it no longer then turning to his associate he said the man is guilty you defend him i can't and when his associate secured a verdict of acquittal lincoln refused to share the fee to the extent of one cent lincoln would never advise clients to enter into unwise or unjust lawsuits always preferring to refuse a retrainer rather than be a party to a case which did not commend itself to his sense of justice end of part ten part eleven of lincoln's yarns and stories by alexander k mcclure this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 11. If they'd only skip. General Creswell called at the White House to see the President the day of the latter's assassination. An old friend, serving in the Confederate ranks, had been captured by the Union troops and sent to prison. He had drawn an affidavit setting forth what he knew about the man, particularly mentioning extenuating circumstances creswell found the president very happy he was greeted with creswell old fellow everything is bright this morning the war is over it has been a tough time but we have lived it out or some of us have and he dropped his voice a little on the last clause of the sentence but it is over we are going to have good times now and a united country general creswell told his story read his affidavit and said i know the man has acted like a fool but he is my friend and a good fellow let him out give him to me and i will be responsible that he won't have anything more to do with the rebs creswell replied mr lincoln you make me think of a lot of young folks who once started out maying to reach their destination they had to cross a shallow stream and did so by means of an old flatboat when the time came to return they found to their dismay that the old scow had disappeared they were in sore trouble and thought over all manner of devices for getting over the water but without avail after a time one of the boys proposed that each fellow should pick up the girl he liked best and wade over with her the masterly proposition was carried out until all that were left upon the island was a little short chap and a great long gothic built elderly lady now creswell you are trying to leave me in the same predicament you fellows are all getting your own friends out of this scrape and you will succeed in carrying off one after another until nobody but jeff davis and myself will be left on the island and then i won't know what to do how should i feel how should i look lugging him over i guess the way to avoid such an embarrassing situation is to let them all out at once he made a somewhat similar illustration at an informal cabinet meeting at which the disposition of jefferson davis and other prominent confederates was discussed each member of the cabinet gave his opinion most of them were for hanging the traitors and for some severe punishment president lincoln said nothing finally joshua f speed his old and confidential friend who had been invited to the meeting said i have heard the opinion of your ministers and would like to hear yours 
well josh replied president lincoln when i was a boy in indiana i went to a neighbor's house one morning and found a boy of my own size holding a coon by the string i asked him what he had and what he was doing he said it's a coon dad caught six last night and killed all but this poor little cuss dad told me to hold him until he came back and i'm afraid he's going to kill this one too and oh abe i do wish he would get away well why don't you let him loose that wouldn't be right and if i let him go dad would give me hell but if he got away himself it would be all right now said the president if jeff davis and those other fellows will only get away it will be all right but if we should catch them and i should let them go dad would give me hell father of the greenback don piat a noted journalist of washington told the story of the first proposition to president lincoln to issue interest-bearing notes as currency as follows amasa walker a distinguished financier of new england suggested that notes issued directly from the government to the people as currency should bear interest this for the purpose not only of making the notes popular but for the purpose of preventing inflation by inducing people to hoard the notes as an investment when the demands of trade would fail to call them into circulation as a currency this idea struck david taylor of ohio with such force that he sought mr lincoln and urged him to put the project into immediate execution the president listened patiently and at the end said that is a good idea taylor but you must go to chase he is running that end of the machine and has time to consider your proposition taylor sought the secretary of the treasury and laid before him amasa walker's plan secretary chase heard him through in a cold unpleasant manner and then said that is all very well mr taylor but there is one little obstacle in the way that makes the plan impractical and that is the constitution saying this he turned to his desk as if dismissing both mr taylor and his proposition at the same moment the poor enthusiast felt rebuked and humiliated he returned to the president however and reported his defeat mr lincoln looked at the would-be financier with the expression at times so peculiar to his homely face that left one in doubt whether he was jesting or in earnest taylor he exclaimed go back to chase and tell him not to bother himself about the constitution say that i have that sacred instrument here at the white house and i am guarding it with great care taylor demurred to this on the ground that secretary chase showed by his manner that he knew all about it and didn't wish to be bored by any suggestion we'll see about that said the president and taking a card from the table he wrote upon it the secretary of the treasury will please consider mr taylor's proposition we must have money and i think this is a good way to get it a lincoln major anderson's bad memory among the men whom captain lincoln met in the black hawk campaign were lieutenant colonel zachary taylor lieutenant jefferson davis president of the confederacy and lieutenant robert anderson all of the united states army judge arnold in his life of abraham lincoln relates that lincoln and anderson did not meet again until some time in eighteen sixty one 
after anderson had evacuated fort sumter on visiting washington he called at the white house to pay his respects to the president lincoln expressed his thanks to anderson for his conduct at fort sumter and then said major do you remember of ever meeting me before no mr president i have no recollection of ever having had that pleasure my memory is better than yours said lincoln you mustered me into the service of the united states in eighteen thirty two at dixon's ferry in the black hawk war no vanderbilt in february eighteen sixty not long before his nomination for the presidency lincoln made several speeches in eastern cities to an illinois acquaintance whom he met at the astor house in new york he said i have the cottage at springfield and about three thousand dollars in money if they make me vice-president with seward as some say they will i hope i shall be able to increase it to twenty thousand and that is as much as any man ought to want squashed a brutal lie in september eighteen sixty four a new york paper printed the following brutal story a few days after the battle of antietam the president was driving over the field in an ambulance accompanied by marshal layman general mcclellan and other officers heavy details of men were engaged in the task of burying the dead the ambulance had just reached the neighborhood of the old stone bridge where the dead were piled highest when mr lincoln suddenly slapping marshal layman on the knee exclaimed come layman give us that song about picayune butler mcclellan has never heard it not now if you please said general mcclellan with a shudder i would prefer to hear it some other place and time president lincoln refused to pay any attention to the story would not read the comments made upon it by the newspapers and would permit neither denial nor explanation to be made the national election was coming on and the president's friends appealed to him to settle the matter for once and all marshal lehman was particularly insistent but the president merely said let the thing alone if i have not established character enough to give the lie to this charge i can only say that i am mistaken in my own estimate of myself in politics every man must skin his own skunk these fellows are welcome to the hide of this one its body has already given forth its unsavory odor but layman would not let the thing alone he submitted to lincoln a draft of what he conceived to be a suitable explanation after reading which the president said layman your uh, explanation is entirely too belligerent in tone for so grave a matter there is a heap of cussedness mixed up with your usual amiability and you are at times too fond of a fight if i were you i would simply state the facts as they were i would give the statement as you have here without the pepper and salt let me try my hand at it the president then took up a pen and wrote the following which was copied and sent out as marshal layman's refutation of the shameless slander the president has known me intimately for nearly twenty years and has often heard me sing little ditties the battle of antietam was fought on the seventeenth day of september eighteen sixty two on the first day of october just two weeks after the battle the president with some others including myself started from washington to visit the army reaching harper's ferry at noon of that day 
in a short while general mcclellan came from his headquarters near the battleground joined the president and with him reviewed the troops at bolivar heights that afternoon and at night returned to his headquarters leaving the president at harper's ferry on the morning of the second the president with general sumner reviewed the troops respectively at loudon heights and maryland heights and about noon started to general mcclellan's headquarters reaching there only in time to see very little before night on the morning of the third all started on a review of the third corps and the cavalry in the vicinity of the antietam battleground after getting through with general burnside's corps at the suggestion of general mcclellan he and the president left their horses to be led and went into an ambulance to go to general fitz john porter's corps which was two or three miles distant i am not sure whether the president and general mcclellan were in the same ambulance or in different ones but myself and some others were in the same with the president on the way and on no part of the battleground and on what suggestions i do not remember the president asked me to sing the little sad song that follows twenty years ago tom which he had often heard me sing and had always seemed to like very much after it was over some one of the party i do not think it was the president asked me to sing something else and i sang two or three little comic things of which picayune butler was one porter's corps was reached and reviewed then the battleground was passed over and the most noted parts examined then in succession the cavalry and franklin's corps were reviewed and the president and party returned to general mcclellan's headquarters at the end of a very hard hot and dusty day's work next day the fourth the president and general mcclellan visited such of the wounded as still remained in the vicinity including the now lamented general richardson then proceeded to and examined the south mountain battleground at which point they parted general mcclellan returning to his camp and the president returning to washington seeing on the way general hartsoff who lay wounded at fredericktown this is the whole story of the singing and its surroundings neither general mcclellan nor anyone else made any objection to the singing the place was not on the battlefield the time was sixteen days after the battle no dead body was seen during the whole time the president was absent from washington nor even a grave that had not been rained on since the time it was made one war at a time nothing in lincoln's entire career better illustrated the surprising resources of his mind than his manner of dealing with the trent affair the readiness and ability with which he met this perilous emergency in a field entirely new to his experience was worthy the most accomplished diplomat and statesman admirable also was his cool courage and self-reliance in following a course radically opposed to the prevailing sentiment throughout the country and in congress and contrary to the advice of his own cabinet secretary of the navy wells hastened to approve officially the act of captain wilkes in apprehending the confederate commissioners mason and slidell secretary stanton publicly applauded and even secretary of state seward whose long public career had made him especially conservative stated that he was opposed to any concession or surrender of mason and slidell but lincoln with great sagacity simply said 
one war at a time president lincoln's last public address the president made his last public address on the evening of april eleventh eighteen sixty five to a gathering at the white house said he we meet this evening not in sorrow but in gladness of heart the evacuation of petersburg and richmond and the surrender of the principal insurgent army give hope of a righteous and speedy peace whose joyous expression cannot be restrained in the midst of this however he from whom all blessings flow must not be forgotten nor must those whose harder part gives us the cause of rejoicing be overlooked their honors must not be parceled out with others i myself was near the front and had the high pleasure of transmitting the good news to you but no part of the honor for plan or execution is mine to general grant his skillful officers and brave men all belongs no others like them one day an old lady from the country called on president lincoln her tanned face peering up to his through a pair of spectacles her errand was to present mr lincoln a pair of stockings of her own make a yard long kind tears came to his eyes as she spoke to him and then holding the stockings one in each hand dangling wide apart for general inspection he assured her that he should take them with him to washington where and here his eyes twinkled he was sure he should not be able to find any like them quite a number of well-known men were in the room with the president when the old lady made her presentation among them was george s butwell who afterwards became secretary of the treasury the amusement of the company was not at all diminished by mr butwell's remark that the lady had evidently made a very correct estimate of mr lincoln's latitude and longitude cash was at hand lincoln was appointed postmaster at new salem by president jackson the office was given him because everybody liked him and because he was the only man willing to take it who could make out the returns lincoln was pleased because it gave him a chance to read every newspaper taken in the vicinity he had never been able to get half the newspapers he wanted before years after the post office had been discontinued and lincoln had become a practicing lawyer at springfield an agent of the post office department entered his office and inquired if abraham lincoln was within lincoln responded to his name and was informed that the agent had called to collect the balance due the department since the discontinuance of the new salem office a shade of perplexity passed over lincoln's face which did not escape the notice of friends present one of them said at once lincoln if you are in want of money let us help you he made no reply but suddenly rose and pulled out from a pile of books a little old trunk and returning to the table asked the agent how much the amount of his debt was the sum was named and then lincoln opened the trunk pulled out a little package of coin wrapped in a cotton rag and counted out the exact sum amounting to more than seventeen dollars after the agent had left the room he remarked quietly that he had never used any man's money but his own although this sum had been in his hands during all those years he had never regarded it as available even for any temporary use of his own welcomed the little girls 
at a saturday afternoon reception at the white house many persons noticed three little girls poorly dressed the children of some mechanic or laboring man who had followed the visitor into the white house to gratify their curiosity they passed around from room to room and were hastening through the reception room with some trepidation when the president called to them little girls are you going to pass me without shaking hands then he bent his tall awkward form down and shook each little girl warmly by the hand everybody in the apartment was spellbound by the incident so simple in itself don't swap horses uncle sam was pretty well satisfied with his horse old abe and as shown at the presidential election of eighteen sixty four made up his mind to keep him and not swap the tried and true animal for a strange one harper's weekly of november twelfth eighteen sixty four had a cartoon which illustrated how the people of the united states felt about the matter better than anything published at the time we reproduce it on this page beneath the picture was this text john bull why don't you ride the other horse a bit he's the best animal pointing to mcclellan in the bushes at the rear brother jonathan well that may be but the fact is old abe is just where i can put my finger on him and as for the other though they say he's some when out in the scrub yonder i never know where to find him most valuable political attribute one time i remember i asked mr lincoln what attribute he considered most valuable to the successful politician said captain t w s kidd of springfield he laid his hand on my shoulder and said very earnestly to be able to raise a cause which shall produce an effect and then fight the effect the more you think about it the more profound does it become abe resented the insult a cashiered officer seeking to be restored through the power of the executive became insolent because the president who believed the man guilty would not accede to his repeated requests at last said well mr president i see you are fully determined not to do me justice this was too aggravating even for mr lincoln rising he suddenly seized the disgraced officer by the coat collar and marched him forcibly to the door saying as he ejected him into the passage sir i give you fair warning never to show your face in this room again i can bear censure but not insult i never wish to see your face again one man isn't missed salmon p chase when secretary of the treasury had a disagreement with other members of the cabinet and resigned the president was urged not to accept it as secretary chase is today a national necessity his adviser said how mistaken you are lincoln quietly observed yet it is not strange i used to have similar notions no if we should all be turned out to-morrow and could come back here in a week we should find our places filled by a lot of fellows doing just as well as we did and in many instances better now this reminds me of what the irishman said his verdict was that in this country one man is as good as another and for the matter of that very often a great deal better no this government does not depend upon the life of any man stretched the facts 
george b lincoln a prominent merchant of brooklyn was traveling through the west in eighteen fifty five fifty six and found himself one night in a town on the illinois river by the name of naples the only tavern of the place had evidently been constructed with reference to business on a small scale poor as the prospect seemed mr lincoln had no alternative but to put up at the place the supper-room was also used as a lodging-room mr lincoln told his host that he thought he would go to bed bed echoed the landlord there is no bed for you in this house unless you sleep with that man yonder he is the only one we have to spare well returned mr lincoln the gentleman has possession and perhaps would not like a bedfellow upon this a grizzly head appeared out of the pillows and said what is your name they call me lincoln at home was the reply lincoln repeated the stranger any connection to our illinois abraham no replied mr lincoln i fear not well said the old gentleman i will let any man by the name of lincoln sleep with me just for the sake of the name you have heard of abe he inquired oh yes very often replied mr lincoln no man could travel far in this state without hearing of him and i would be very glad to claim connection if i could do so honestly well said the old gentleman my name is simmons abe and i used to live and work together when young men many a job of woodcutting and rail splitting have i done up with him abe lincoln was the likeliest boy in god's world he would work all day as hard as any of us and study by firelight in the log house half the night and in this way he made himself a thorough practical surveyor once during these days i was in the upper part of the state and i met general ewing whom president jackson had sent to the northwest to make surveys i told him about abe lincoln what a student he was and that i wanted he should give him a job he looked over his memorandum and holding out a paper said there is county must be surveyed if your friend can do the work properly i shall be glad to have him undertake it the compensation will be six hundred dollars pleased as i could be i hastened to abe after i got home with an account of what i had secured for him he was sitting before the fire in the log cabin when i told him and what do you think was his answer when i finished he looked up very quietly and said mr simmons i thank you very sincerely for your kindness but i don't think i will undertake the job in the name of wonder said i why six hundred does not grow upon every bush out here in illinois i know that said abe and i need the money bad enough simmons as you know but i have never been under obligation to a democratic administration and i never intend to be so long as i can get my living another way general ewing must find another man to do his work a friend related this story to the president one day and asked him if it were true pollard simmons said lincoln well do i remember him it is correct about our working together but the old man must have stretched the facts somewhat about the survey of the county i think i should have been very glad of the job at the time no matter what administration was in power it lengthened the war president lincoln said long before the national political campaign of eighteen sixty four had opened if the unworthy ambition of politicians and the jealousy that exists in the army could be repressed and all unite in a common aim and a common endeavor the rebellion would soon be crushed his theory of the rebellion 
the president once explained to a friend the theory of the rebellion by the aid of the maps before him running his long forefinger down the map he stopped at virginia we must drive them away from here manassas gap he said and clear them out of this part of the state so that they cannot threaten us here washington and get into maryland we must keep up a good and thorough blockade of their ports we must march an army into east tennessee and liberate the union sentiment there finally we must rely on the people growing tired and saying to their leaders we have had enough of this thing we will bear it no longer such was president lincoln's plan for heading off the rebellion in the summer of eighteen sixty one how it enlarged as the war progressed from a call for seventy thousand volunteers to one for five hundred thousand men and five hundred million dollars is a matter of well-known history ran away when victorious three or four days after the battle of bull run some gentlemen who had been on the field called upon the president he inquired very minutely regarding all the circumstances of the affair and after listening with the utmost attention said with a touch of humor so it is your notion that we whipped the rebels and then ran away from them wanted stanton spanked old dennis hanks was sent to washington at one time by persons interested in securing the release from jail of several men accused of being copperheads it was thought old dennis might have some influence with the president the latter heard dennis's story and then said i will send for mr stanton it is his business secretary stanton came into the room stormed up and down said the men ought to be punished more than they were mr lincoln sat quietly in his chair and waited for the tempest to subside and then quietly said to stanton he would like to have the papers next day when he had gone dennis said abe if i was as big and as ugly as you are i would take him over my knee and spank him the president replied no stanton is an able and valuable man for this nation and i am glad to bear his anger for the service he can give the nation stanton was out of town the quaint remark of the president to an applicant my dear sir i have not much influence with the administration was one of lincoln's little jokes mr stanton secretary of war once replied to an order from the president to give a colonel a commission in place of the resigning brigadier i shan't do it sir i shan't do it it isn't the way to do it sir and i shan't do it i don't propose to argue the question with you sir a few days after the friend of the applicant who had presented the order to secretary stanton called upon the president and related his reception a look of vexation came over the face of the president and he seemed unwilling to talk of it and desired the friend to see him another day he did so and when he gave his visitor a positive order for the promotion the latter told him he would not speak to secretary stanton again until he apologized oh said the president stanton has gone to fortress monroe and dana is acting he will attend to it for you this he said with a manner of relief as if it was a piece of good luck to find a man there who would obey his orders the nomination was sent to the senate and confirmed end of part eleven
part twelve of lincoln's yarns and stories by alexander k mcclure this librivox recording is in the public domain part twelve identified the colored man many applications reached lincoln as he passed to and from the white house and the war department one day as he crossed the park he was stopped by a negro who told him a pitiful story the president wrote him out a check which read pay to the colored man with one leg five dollars office seekers worse than war when the republican party came into power washington swarmed with office seekers they overran the white house and gave the president great annoyance the incongruity of a man in his position and with the very life of the country at stake pausing to appoint postmasters struck mr lincoln forcibly what is the matter mr lincoln said a friend one day when he saw him looking particularly grave and dispirited has anything gone wrong at the front no said the president with a tired smile it isn't the war it's the post office at brownsville missouri he set him up immediately after mr lincoln's nomination for president at the chicago convention a committee of which governor morgan of new york was chairman visited him in springfield illinois where he was officially informed of his nomination after this ceremony had passed mr lincoln remarked to the company that as a fit ending to an interview so important and interesting as that which had just taken place he supposed good manners would require that he should treat the committee with something to drink and opening the door that led into the rear he called out mary mary a girl responded to the call to whom mr lincoln spoke a few words in an undertone and closing the door returned again and talked with his guests in a few minutes the maid entered bearing a large waiter containing several glass tumblers and a large pitcher and placed them upon the centre table mr lincoln arose and gravely addressing the company said gentlemen we must pledge our mutual health in the most healthy beverage that god has given to man it is the only beverage i have ever used or allowed my family to use and i cannot conscientiously depart from it on the present occasion it is pure adam's ale from the spring and taking the tumbler he touched it to his lips and pledged them his highest respects in a cup of cold water of course all his guests admired his consistency and joined in his example wasn't stanton's say a few days before the president's death secretary stanton tendered his resignation as secretary of war he accompanied the act with a most heartfelt tribute to mr lincoln's constant friendship and faithful devotion to the country saying also that he as secretary had accepted the position to hold it only until the war should end and that now he felt his work was done and his duty was to resign mr lincoln was greatly moved by the secretary's words and tearing in pieces the paper containing the resignation and throwing his arms about the secretary he said stanton you have been a good friend and a faithful public servant and it is not for you to say when you will no longer be needed here several friends of both parties were present on the occasion and there was not a dry eye that witnessed the scene jeffy threw up the sponge 
when the war was fairly on many people were astonished to find that old abe was a fighter from way back no one was the victim of greater amazement than jefferson davis president of the confederate states of america davis found out that abe was not only a hard hitter but had staying qualities of a high order it was a fight to a finish with abe no compromises being accepted over the title north and south the issue of frank leslie's illustrated newspaper of december twenty fourth eighteen sixty four contained the cartoon see reproduced on this page underneath the picture were the lines now jeffy when you think you have had enough of this say so and i'll leave off see president's message in his message to congress december sixth president lincoln said no attempt at negotiation with the insurgent leader could result in any good he would accept of nothing short of the severance of the union therefore father abraham getting jeffy's head in chancery proceeded to change the appearance and size of the secessionist's countenance much to the grief and discomfort of the southerner it was lincoln's idea to re-establish the union and he carried out his purpose to the very letter but he didn't leave off until jeffy cried enough didn't know grant's preference in october eighteen sixty four president lincoln while he knew his re-election to the white house was in no sense doubtful knew that if he lost new york and with it pennsylvania on the home vote the moral effect of his triumph would be broken and his power to prosecute the war and make peace would be greatly impaired colonel a k mcclure was with lincoln a good deal of the time previous to the november election and tells this story his usually sad face was deeply shadowed with sorrow when i told him that i saw no reasonable prospect of carrying pennsylvania on the home vote although we had about held our own in the hand-to-hand -hand conflict through which we were passing well what is to be done was lincoln's inquiry after the whole situation had been presented to him i answered that the solution of the problem was a very simple and easy one that grant was idle in front of petersburg that sheridan had won all possible victories in the valley and that if five thousand pennsylvania soldiers could be furloughed home from each army the election could be carried without doubt lincoln's face brightened instantly at the suggestion and i saw that he was quite ready to execute it i said to him of course you can trust want to make the suggestion to him to furlough five thousand pennsylvania troops for two weeks to my surprise lincoln made no answer and the bright face of a few moments before was instantly shadowed again i was much disconcerted and i supposed that grant was the one man to whom lincoln could turn with absolute confidence as his friend i then said with some earnestness surely mr president you can trust grant with a confidential suggestion to furlough pennsylvania troops lincoln remained silent and evidently distressed at the proposition i was pressing upon him after a few moments and speaking with emphasis i said it can't be possible that grant is not your friend he can't be such an ingrate lincoln hesitated for some time and then answered in these words well mcclure i have no reason to believe that grant prefers my election to that of mcclellan i believe lincoln was mistaken in his distrust of grant 
justice versus numbers lincoln was constantly bothered by members of delegations of goody goodies who knew all about running the war but had no inside information as to what was going on yet they poured out their advice in streams until the president was heartily sick of the whole business and wished the war would find some way to kill off these nuisances how many men have the confederates now in the field asked one of these boars one day about one million two hundred thousand replied the president oh my not so many as that surely mr lincoln they have fully twelve hundred thousand no doubt of it you see all of our generals when they get whipped say the enemy outnumbers them from three or five to one and i must believe them we have four hundred thousand men in the field and three times four makes twelve don't you see it it is as plain to be seen as the nose on a man's face and at the rate things are now going with the great amount of speculation and the small crop of fighting it will take a long time to overcome twelve hundred thousand rebels in arms if they can get subsistence they have everything else except a just cause yet it is said that thrice is he armed that hath his quarrel just i am willing however to risk our advantage of thrice injustice against their thrice in numbers no false pride in lincoln general mcclellan had little or no conception of the greatness of abraham lincoln as time went on he began to show plainly his contempt of the president frequently allowing him to wait in the anteroom of his house while he transacted business with others this discourtesy was so open that mcclellan's staff noticed it and newspaper correspondents commented on it the president was too keen not to see the situation but he was strong enough to ignore it it was a battle he wanted from mcclellan not deference i will hold mcclellan's horse if he will only bring us success he said one day extra member of the cabinet g h giddings was selected as the bearer of a message from the president to governor sam houston of texas a conflict had arisen there between the southern party and the governor sam houston and on march eighteen the latter had been deposed when mr lincoln heard of this he decided to try to get a message to the governor offering united states support if he would put himself at the head of the union party of the state mr giddings thus told of his interview with the president he said to me that the message was of such importance that before handing it to me he would read it to me before beginning to read he said this is a confidential and secret message no one besides my cabinet and myself knows anything about it and we are all sworn to secrecy i am going to swear you in as one of my cabinet and then he said to me in a jocular way hold out your right hand which i did now said he consider yourself a member of my cabinet how lincoln was abused with the possible exception of president washington whose political opponents did not hesitate to rob the vocabulary of vulgarity and wickedness whenever they desired to vilify the chief magistrate lincoln was the most and best abused man who ever held office in the united states during the first half of his initial term there was no epithet which was not applied to him one newspaper in new york habitually characterized him as that hideous baboon at the other end of the avenue 
and declared that barnum should buy and exhibit him as a zoological curiosity although the president did not to all appearances exhibit annoyance because of the various diatribes printed and spoken yet the fact is that his life was so cruelly embittered by these and other expressions quite as virulent that he often declared to those most intimate with him i would rather be dead than as president thus abused in the house of my friends how fighting joe was appointed general joe hooker the fourth commander of the noble but unfortunately army of the potomac was appointed to that position by president lincoln in january eighteen sixty three general scott for some reason disliked hooker and would not appoint him hooker after some months of discouraging waiting decided to return to california and called to pay his respects to president lincoln he was introduced as captain hooker and to the surprise of the president began the following speech mr president my friend makes a mistake i am not captain hooker but was once lieutenant colonel hooker of the regular army i was lately a farmer in california but since the rebellion broke out i have been trying to get into service but i find i am not wanted i am about to return home but before going i was anxious to pay my respects to you and express my wishes for your personal welfare and success in quelling this rebellion and i want to say to you a word more i was at bull run the other day mr president and it is no vanity in me to say i am a darn sight better general than you had on the field this was said not in the tone of a braggart but of a man who knew what he was talking about hooker did not return to california but in a few weeks captain hooker received from the president a commission as brigadier general hooker kept his courage up the president like old king saul when his term was about to expire was in a quandary concerning a further lease of the presidential office he consulted again the prophetess of georgetown immortalized by his patronage she retired to an inner chamber and after raising and consulting more than a dozen of distinguished spirits from hades she returned to the reception parlor where the chief magistrate awaited her and declared that general grant would capture richmond and that honest old abe would be next president she however as the report goes told him to beware of chase a fortune teller's prediction lincoln had been born and reared among people who were believers in premonitions and supernatural appearances all his life and he once declared to his friends that he was from boyhood superstitious he at one time said to judge arnold that the near approach of the important events of his life were indicated by a presentiment or a strange dream or in some other mysterious way it was impressed upon him that something important was to occur this was earlier than eighteen fifty it is said that on his second visit to new orleans lincoln and his companion john hanks visited an old fortune teller a voodoo negress tradition says that during the interview she became very much excited and after various predictions exclaimed you will be president and all the negroes will be free that the old voodoo negress should have foretold that the visitor would be president is not at all incredible 
she doubtless told this to many aspiring lads but lincoln so it is avowed took the prophecy seriously too much powder so great was lincoln's anxiety for the success of the union arms that he considered no labor on his part too arduous and spent much of his time in looking after even the small details admiral dahlgren was sent for one morning by the president who said well captain here's a letter about some new powder after reading the letter he showed the sample of powder and remarked that he had burned some of it and did not believe it was a good article here was too much residuum i will show you he said and getting a small piece of paper placed thereupon some of the powder then went to the fire and with the tongs picked up a coal which he blew clapped it on the powder and after the resulting explosion added you see there is too much left there sleep standing up mcclellan was a thorn in lincoln's side always up in the air as the president put it and yet he hesitated to remove him the young napoleon was a good organizer but no fighter lincoln sent him everything necessary in the way of men ammunition artillery and equipments but he was forever unready instead of making a forward movement at the time expected he would notify the president that he must have more men these were given him as rapidly as possible and then would come a demand for more horses more this and that usually winding up with a demand for still more men lincoln bore it all in patience for a long time but one day when he had received another request for more men he made a vigorous protest if i give mcclellan all the men he asked for said the president they couldn't find room to lie down they'd have to sleep standing up should have fought another battle general meade after the great victory at gettysburg was again face to face with general lee shortly afterwards at williamsport and even the former's warmest friends agree that he might have won in another battle but he took no action he was not a pushing man like grant it was this negligence on the part of meade that lost him the rank of lieutenant-general conferred upon general sheridan a friend of meade's speaking to president lincoln and intimating that meade should have after that battle been made commander-in-chief of the union armies received this reply from lincoln now don't misunderstand me about general meade i am profoundly grateful down to the bottom of my boots for what he did at gettysburg but i think that if i had been general meade i would have fought another battle lincoln upbraided layman in one of his reminiscences of lincoln ward layman tells how keenly the president-elect always regretted the sneaking in act when he made the celebrated midnight ride which he took under protest and landed him in washington known to but a few layman says the president was convinced that he committed a grave mistake in listening to the solicitations of a professional spy and of friends too easily alarmed and frequently upbraided me for having aided him to degrade himself at the very moment in all his life when his behavior should have exhibited the utmost dignity and composure neither he nor the country generally then understood the true facts concerning the dangers to his life 
it is now an acknowledged fact that there never was a moment from the day he crossed the maryland line up to the time of his assassination that he was not in danger of death by violence and that his life was spared until the night of the fourteenth of april eighteen sixty five only through the ceaseless and watchful care of the guards thrown around him marked out a few words president lincoln was calm and unmoved when england and france were blustering and threatening war at lincoln's instance secretary of state seward notified the english cabinet and the french emperor that as ours was merely a family quarrel of a strictly private and confidential nature there was no call for meddling also that they would have a war on their hands in a very few minutes if they didn't keep their hands off many of seward's notes were couched in decidedly peppery terms some expressions being so tart that president lincoln ran his pen through them lincoln silences seward general farnsworth told the writer nearly twenty years ago that being in the war office one day secretary stanton told him that at the last cabinet meeting he had learned a lesson he should never forget and thought he had obtained an insight into mr lincoln's wonderful power over the masses the secretary said a cabinet meeting was called to consider our relations with england in regard to the mason slidell affair one after another of the cabinet presented his views and mr seward read an elaborate diplomatic dispatch which he had prepared finally mr lincoln read what he termed a few brief remarks upon the subject and asked the opinions of his auditors they unanimously agreed that our side of the question needed no more argument than was contained in the president's few brief remarks mr seward said he would be glad to adopt the remarks and giving them more of the phraseology usual in diplomatic circles send them to lord palmerston the british premier then said secretary stanton came the demonstration the president half wheeling in his seat threw one leg over the chair arm and holding the letter in his hand said seward do you suppose palmerston will understand our position from that letter just as it is certainly mr president do you suppose the london times will certainly do you suppose the average englishman of affairs will certainly it cannot be mistaken in england do you suppose that a hackman out on his box pointing to the street will understand it very readily mr president very well seward i guess we'll let her slide just as she is and the letter did slide and settled the whole business in a manner that was effective brought the husband up one morning president lincoln asked major eckert on duty at the white house who is that woman crying out in the hall what is the matter with her eckert said it was a woman who had come a long distance expecting to go down to the army to see her husband an order had gone out a short time before to allow no women in the army except in special cases mr lincoln sat moodily for a moment after hearing this story and suddenly looking up said let's send her down you write the order major major eckert hesitated a moment and replied would it not be better for colonel hardy to write the order yes said mr lincoln that is better let hardy write it 
the major went out and soon returned saying mr president would it not be better in this case to let the woman's husband come to washington mr lincoln's face lighted up with pleasure yes yes was the president's answer in a relieved tone that's the best way bring him up the order was written and the man was sent to washington no war without bloodletting you can't carry on war without bloodletting said lincoln one day the president although almost feminine in his kind-heartedness knew not only this but also that large bodies of soldiers in camp were at the mercy of diseases of every sort the result being a heavy casualty list of the estimated half-million men of the union armies who gave up their lives in the war of the rebellion eighteen sixty one to sixty five fully seventy-five per cent died of disease the soldiers killed upon the field of battle constituted a comparatively small proportion of the casualties lincoln's two difficulties london punch charactered president lincoln in every possible way holding him and the union cause up to the ridicule of the world so far as it could on august twenty third eighteen sixty two its cartoon entitled lincoln's two difficulties had the text underneath lincoln what no money no men punch desired to create the impression that the washington government was in a bad way lacking both money and men for the purpose of putting down the rebellion that the united states treasury was bankrupt and the people of the north so devoid of patriotism that they would not send men for the army to assist in destroying the confederacy the truth is that when this cartoon was printed the north had five hundred thousand men in the field and before the war closed had provided fully two million and a half troops the report of the secretary of the treasury which showed the financial affairs and situation of the united states up to july eighteen sixty two the receipts of the national government for the year ending june thirtieth eighteen sixty two were ten million dollars in excess of the expenditures although the war was costing the country two million dollars per day the credit of the united states was good and business matters were in a satisfactory state the navy by august twenty third eighteen sixty two had received eighteen thousand additional men and was in fine shape the people of the north stood ready to supply anything the government needed so that all things taken together the punch cartoon was not exactly true as the facts and figures abundantly proved white elephant on his hands an old and intimate friend from springfield called on president lincoln and found him much depressed the president was reclining on a sofa but rising suddenly he said to his friend you know better than any man living that from my boyhood up my ambition was to be president i am president of one part of this divided country at least but look at me oh i wish i had never been born i've a white elephant on my hands one hard to manage with a fire in my front and rear to contend with the jealousies of the military commanders and not receiving that cordial cooperative support from congress that could reasonably be expected with an active and formidable enemy in the field threatening the very lifeblood of the government my position is anything but a bed of roses when lincoln and grant clashed 
ward layman one of president lincoln's law partners and his most intimate friend in washington had this to relate i am not aware that there was ever a serious discord or misunderstanding between mr lincoln and general grant except on a single occasion from the commencement of the struggle lincoln's policy was to break the backbone of the confederacy by depriving it of its principal means of subsistence cotton was its vital element deprived of this and the rebellion must necessarily collapse the hon elihu b washburn from the outset was opposed to any contraband traffic with the confederates lincoln had given permits and passes through the lines to two persons mr joseph maddox of maryland and general singleton of illinois to enable them to bring cotton and other southern products from virginia washburn heard of it called immediately on mr lincoln and after remonstrating with him on the impropriety of such a demarche threatened to have general grant countermand the permits if they were not revoked naturally both became excited lincoln declared that he did not believe general grant would take upon himself the responsibility of such an act i will show you sir i will show you whether grant will do it or not replied it to mr washburn as he abruptly withdrew by the next vote subsequent to this interview the congressman left washington for the headquarters of general grant he returned shortly afterward to the city and so likewise did maddox and singleton grant had countermanded the permits under all the circumstances it was naturally a source of exultation to mr washburn and his friends and of corresponding surprise and mortification to the president the latter however said nothing further than this i wonder when general grant changed his mind on this subject he was the first man after the commencement of this war to grant a permit for the passage of cotton through the lines and that to his own father the president however never showed any resentment toward general grant in referring afterwards to the subject the president said it made me feel my insignificance keenly at the moment but if my friends washburn henry wilson and others derive pleasure from so unworthy a victory over me i leave them to its full enjoyment this ripple on the otherwise unruffled current of their intercourse did not disturb the personal relations between lincoln and grant but there was little cordiality between the president and messrs washburn and wilson afterwards End of part twelve part thirteen of lincoln's yarns and stories by alexander k mcclure this librivox recording is in the public domain part thirteen one james gordon bennett support the story as to how president lincoln won the support of james gordon bennett senior founder of the new york herald is a most interesting one it was one of lincoln's shrewdest political acts and was brought about by the tender in an autograph letter of the french mission to bennett the new york times was the only paper in the metropolis which supported him heartily and president lincoln knew how important it was to have the support of the herald he therefore according to the way colonel mcclure tells it carefully studied how to bring its editor into close touch with himself 
the outlook for lincoln's re-election was not promising bennett had strongly advocated the nomination of general mcclellan by the democrats and that was ominous of hostility to lincoln and when mcclellan was nominated he was accepted on all sides as a most formidable candidate it was in this emergency that lincoln's political sagacity served him sufficiently to win the herald to his cause and it was done by the confidential tender of the french mission bennett did not break over to lincoln at once but he went by gradual approaches his first step was to declare in favor of an entirely new candidate which was an utter impossibility he opened a leader in the herald on the subject in this way lincoln has proved a failure mcclellan has proved a failure fremont has proved a failure let us have a new candidate lincoln mcclellan and fremont were then all in the field as nominated candidates and the fremont defection was a serious threat to lincoln of course neither lincoln nor mcclellan declined and the herald failing to get the new man it knew to be an impossibility squarely advocated lincoln's re-election without consulting anyone and without any public announcement whatever lincoln wrote to bennett asking him to accept the mission to france the offer was declined bennett valued the offer very much more than the office and from that day until the day of the president's death he was one of Lincoln's most appreciative friends and hearty supporters on his own independent line. Stood by the Silent Man Once, in reply to a delegation which visited the White House, the members of which were unusually vociferous in their demands that the Silent Man, as General Grant was called, should be relieved from duty, the President remarked, what i want and what the people want is generals who will fight battles and win victories grant has done this and i propose to stand by him this declaration found its way into the newspapers and lincoln was upheld by the people of the north who also wanted generals who will fight battles and win victories a very brainy nubbin President Lincoln and Secretary of State Seward met Alexander H. Stevens, Vice President of the Confederacy, on February 2, 1865, on the River Queen at Fortress Monroe. Stevens was enveloped in overcoats and shawls and had the appearance of a fair-sized man. He began to take off one wrapping after another until the small, shriveled old man stood before them lincoln quietly said to seward this is the largest shucking for so small a nubbin that i ever saw president lincoln had a friendly conference but presented his ultimatum that the one and only condition of peace was that the confederates must cease their resistance sent to his friends during the civil war clement l vallandingham of ohio had shown himself in the national house of representatives and elsewhere one of the bitterest and most outspoken of all the men of that class which insisted that the war was a failure he declared that it was the design of those in power to establish a despotism and that they had no intention of restoring the union he denounced the conscription which had been ordered and declared that men who submitted to be drafted into the army were unworthy to be called free men he spoke of the president as king lincoln such utterances at this time when the government was exerting itself to the utmost to recruit the armies were dangerous 
and Vallandigham was arrested, tried by court-martial at Cincinnati, and sentenced to be placed in confinement during the war. General Burnside, in command at Cincinnati, approved the sentence and ordered that he be sent to Fort Warren in Boston Harbor, but the President ordered that he be sent beyond our lines into those of his friends. He was therefore escorted to the Confederate lines in Tennessee, thence going to Richmond. He did not meet with a very cordial reception there, and finally sought refuge in Canada. Vallandigham died in a most peculiar way some years after the close of the war, and it was thought by many that his death was the result of premeditation upon his part. Go Down With Colors Flying in August 1864, the President called for 500,000 more men. The country was much depressed. The Confederates had, in comparatively small force, only a short time before, been to the very gates of Washington and returned almost unharmed. The presidential election was impending. Many thought another call for men at such a time would ensure, if not destroy, Mr. Lincoln's chance for re-election. A friend said as much to him one day, after the President had told him of his purpose to make such a call. "'As to my re-election,' replied Mr. Lincoln, "'it matters not. We must have the men. If I go down, I intend to go, like the Cumberland, with my colors flying.'" All were tragedies. The cartoon reproduced below was published in Harper's Weekly on January 31, 1863, the explanatory text underneath reading in this way. Manager Lincoln, ladies and gentlemen, I regret to say that the tragedy entitled The Army of the Potomac has been withdrawn on account of quarrels among the leading performers, and I have substituted three new and striking farces, or burlesques, one entitled The Repulse of Vicksburg by the well-known favorite E. M. Stanton, Esquire, and the others The Loss of the Harriet Lane and The Exploits of the Alabama, a very sweet thing in farces i assure you by the veteran composer gideon wells unbounded applause by the copperheads in july after this cartoon appeared the army of the potomac defeated lee at gettysburg and sounded the death knell of the confederacy general hooker with his corps from this army opened the tennessee river thus affording some relief to the union troops in chattanooga hooker's men also captured lookout mountain and assisted in taking missionary ridge general grant converted the farce the repulse of vicksburg into a tragedy for the copperheads taking that stronghold on july fourth and captain winslow with the union man-of-war kearsarge meeting the confederate privateer alabama off the coast of france near cherbourg fought the famous ship to a finish and sunk her thus the tragedy of the army of the potomac was given after all and playwright stanton and composer wells were vindicated their compositions having been received by the public with great favor he's the best of us secretary of state seward did not appreciate president lincoln's ability until he had been associated with him for quite a time but he was awakened to a full realization of the greatness of the chief executive all of a sudden. 
having submitted some thoughts for the president's consideration a lengthy paper intended as an outline of the policy both domestic and foreign the administration should pursue he was not more surprised at the magnanimity and kindness of president lincoln's reply than the thorough mastery of the subject displayed by the president a few months later when the secretary had begun to understand mr lincoln he was quick and generous to acknowledge his power executive force and vigor are rare qualities he wrote to mrs seward the president is the best of us how lincoln composed superintendent chandler of the telegraph office in the war department once told how president lincoln wrote telegrams said he mr lincoln frequently wrote telegrams in my office his method of composition was slow and laborious it was evident that he thought out what he was going to say before he touched his pen to the paper he would sit looking out of the window his left elbow on the table his hand scratching his temple his lips moving and frequently he spoke the sentence aloud or in half whisper after he was satisfied that he had the proper expression he would write it out if one examines the originals of mr lincoln's telegrams and letters he will find very few erasures and very little interlining this was because he had them definitely in his mind before writing them in this he was the exact opposite of mr stanton who wrote with feverish haste often scratching out words and interlining frequently sometimes he would seize a sheet which he had filled and impatiently tear it into pieces hamlin might do it several united states senators urged president lincoln to muster southern slaves into the union army lincoln replied gentlemen i have put thousands of muskets into the hands of loyal citizens of tennessee kentucky and western north carolina they have said they could defend themselves if they had guns i have given them guns now these men do not believe in mustering in the negro if i do it these thousands of muskets will be turned against us we should lose more than we should gain being still further urged president lincoln gave them this answer gentlemen he said i can't do it i can't see it as you do you may be right and i may be wrong but i'll tell you what i can do i can resign in favor of mr hamlin perhaps mr hamlin could do it the matter ended there for the time being the gun shot better the president took a lively interest in all new firearm improvements and inventions and it sometimes happened that when an inventor could get nobody else in the government to listen to him the president would personally test his gun a former clerk in the navy department tells an incident illustrative he had stayed late one night at his desk when he heard someone striding up and down the hall muttering i do wonder if they have gone already and left the building all alone looking out the clerk was surprised to see the president good evening said mr lincoln i was just looking for that man who goes shooting with me sometimes the clerk knew mr lincoln referred to a certain messenger of the ordnance department who had been accustomed to going with him to test weapons but as this man had gone home the clerk offered his services together they went to the lawn south of the white house where mr lincoln fixed up a target cut from a sheet of white congressional note paper then pacing off a distance of about eighty or a hundred feet writes the clerk 
he raised the rifle to a level took a quick aim and drove the round of seven shots in quick succession the bullets shooting all around the target like a gatling gun and one striking near the center i believe i can make this gun shoot better said mr lincoln after we had looked at the result of the first fire with this he took from his vest pocket a small wooden sight which he had whittled from a pine stick and adjusted it over the side of the carbine he then shot two rounds and of the fourteen bullets nearly a dozen hit the paper lenient with mcclellan general mcclellan aside from his lack of aggressiveness fretted the president greatly with his complaints about military matters his obtrusive criticism regarding political matters and especially at his insulting declaration to the secretary of war dated june twenty eighth eighteen sixty two just after his retreat to the james river general halleck was made commander-in-chief of the union forces in july eighteen sixty two and september first mcclellan was called to washington the day before he had written his wife that as a matter of self-respect i cannot go there president lincoln and general halleck called at mcclellan's house and the president said as a favor to me i wish you would take command of the fortifications of washington and all the troops for the defense of the capital lincoln thought highly of mcclellan's ability as an organizer and his strength in defense yet any other president would have had him court-martialed for using this language which appeared in mcclellan's letter of june twenty eighth if i save this army now i tell you plainly that i owe no thanks to you or to any other person in washington you have done your best to sacrifice this army this letter though addressed to the secretary of war distinctly embraced the president in the grave charge of conspiracy to defeat mcclellan's army and sacrifice thousands of the lives of his soldiers didn't want a military reputation lincoln was averse to being put up as a military hero when general cass was a candidate for the presidency his friends sought to endow him with a military reputation lincoln at that time a representative in congress delivered a speech before the house which in its allusion to mr cass was exquisitely sarcastic and irresistibly humorous by the way mr speaker said lincoln do you know i am a military hero yes sir in the days of the black hawk war i fought bled and came away speaking of general cass's career reminds me of my own i was not at stillman's defeat but i was about as near it as cast to hull's surrender and like him i saw the place very soon afterwards it is quite certain i did not break my sword for i had none to break but i bent my musket pretty badly on one occasion if general cass went in advance of me picking whortleberries i guess i surpassed him in charging upon the wild onion if he saw any live fighting indians it was more than i did but i had a good many bloody struggles with the mosquitoes and although i never fainted from loss of blood i can truly say that i was often very hungry lincoln concluded by saying that if he ever turned democrat and should run for the presidency he hoped they would not make fun of him by attempting to make him a military hero surrender no slave 
after march eighteen sixty two general benjamin f butler in command of fortress monroe advised president lincoln that he had determined to regard all slaves coming into his camps as contraband of war and to employ their labor under fair compensation and secretary of war stanton replied to him in behalf of the president approving his course and saying you are not to interfere between master and slave on the one hand nor surrender slaves who may come within your lines this was a significant milestone of progress to the great end that was thereafter to be reached conscripting dead men mr lincoln being found fault with for making another call said that if the country required it he would continue to do so until the matter stood as described by a western provost-marshal who says i listened a short time since to a butternut-clad individual who succeeded in making good his escape expatiate most eloquently on the rigidness with which the conscription was enforced south of the tennessee river his response to a question propounded by a citizen ran somewhat in this wise do they conscript close over the river stranger i should think they did they take every man who hasn't been dead more than two days if this is correct the confederacy has at least a ghost of a chance left and of another a methodist minister in kansas living on a small salary who was greatly troubled to get his quarterly installment he at last told the non-paying trustees that he must have his money as he was suffering for the necessaries of life money replied the trustees you preach for money we thought you preached for the good of souls souls responded the reverend i can't eat souls and if i could it would take a thousand such as yours to make a meal the soul is the point sir said the president lincoln's rejected manuscript on february fifth eighteen sixty five president lincoln formulated a message to congress proposing the payment of four hundred million dollars to the south as compensation for slaves lost by emancipation and submitted it to his cabinet only to be unanimously rejected lincoln sadly accepted the decision and filed away the manuscript message together with this endorsement thereon to which his signature was added february five eighteen sixty five today these papers which explain themselves were drawn up and submitted to the cabinet unanimously disapproved by them when the proposed message was disapproved lincoln soberly asked how long will the war last to this none could make answer and he added we are spending now in carrying on the war three million dollars a day which will amount to all this money besides all the lives lincoln as a story writer in his youth mr lincoln once got an idea for a thrilling romantic story one day in springfield he was sitting with his feet on the window-sill chatting with an acquaintance when he suddenly changed the drift of the conversation by saying did you ever write out a story in your mind i did when i was a little codger one day a wagon with a lady and two girls and a man broke down near us and while they were fixing up they cooked in our kitchen the woman had books and read us stories and they were the first i had ever heard i took a great fancy to one of the girls and when they were gone i thought of her a great deal and one day when i was sitting out in the sun by the house i wrote out a story in my mind 
i thought i took my father's horse and followed the wagon and finally i found it and they were surprised to see me i talked with the girl and persuaded her to elope with me and that night i put her on my horse and we started off across the prairie after several hours we came to a camp and when we rode up we found it was one we had left a few hours before and went in the next night we tried again and the same thing happened the horse came back to the same place and then we concluded that we ought not to elope i stayed until i had persuaded her father to give her to me i always meant to write that story out and publish it and i began once but i concluded that it was not much of a story but i think that was the beginning of love with me lincoln's ideas on crossing a river when he got to it lincoln's reply to a springfield illinois clergyman who asked him what was to be his policy on the slavery question was most apt well your question is rather a cool one but i will answer it by telling you a story you know father b the old methodist preacher and you know fox river and its freshets well once in the presence of father b a young methodist was worrying about fox river and expressing fears that he should be prevented from fulfilling some of his appointments by a freshet in the river father b checked him in his gravest manner said he young man i have always made it a rule in my life not to cross fox river till i get to it and said the president i am not going to worry myself over the slavery question till i get to it a few days afterward a methodist minister called on the president and on being presented to him said simply mr president i have come to tell you that i think we have got to fox river lincoln thanked the clergyman and laughed heartily president nominated first the day of lincoln's second nomination for the presidency he forgot all about the Republican National Convention, sitting at Baltimore, and wandered over to the War Department. While there, a telegram came announcing the nomination of Johnson as Vice President. What, said Lincoln to the operator, do they nominate a Vice President before they do a President? Why, replied the astonished official, have you not heard of your own nomination? It was sent to the White House two hours ago. It is all right, replied the President i shall probably find it on my return them guillotines the illustrated newspaper of the united states and england had a good deal of fun not only with president lincoln but the latter's cabinet officers and military commanders as well it was said by these funny publications that the president had set up a guillotine in his back yard where all those who offended were beheaded with both neatness and dispatch harper's weekly of january third eighteen sixty three contained a cartoon labeled those guillotines a little incident at the white house the personages figuring in the incident being secretary of war stanton and a union general who had been unfortunate enough to lose a battle to the confederates beneath the cartoon was the following dialogue servant if you please sir them guillotines has a robe mr lincoln all right michael now gentlemen will you be kind enough to step out in the back yard the hair and whiskers of secretary of war stanton are ruffled and awry and his features are not calm and undisturbed indicating that he has an idea of what's the matter in that back yard 
the countenance of the officer in the rear of the secretary of war wears rather an anxious or worried look and his hair isn't combed smoothly either president lincoln's frequent changes among army commanders before he found grant sherman and sheridan afforded an opportunity the characterist did not neglect and some very clever cartoons were the consequence consider the sympathy of lincoln consider the sympathy of abraham lincoln do you know the story of william scott private he was a boy from a vermont farm there had been a long march and the night succeeding it he had stood on picket the next day there had been another long march and that night william scott had volunteered to stand guard in the place of a sick comrade who had been drawn for the duty it was too much for william scott he was too tired he had been found sleeping on his beat the army was at chain bridge it was in a dangerous neighborhood discipline must be kept william scott was apprehended tried by court-martial sentenced to be shot news of the case was carried to lincoln william scott was a prisoner in his tent expecting to be shot next day but the flaps of his tent were parted and lincoln stood before him scott said the president was the kindest man i had ever seen i knew him at once by a lincoln medal i had long worn I was scared at first, for I had never before talked with a great man, but Mr. Lincoln was so easy with me, so gentle, that I soon forgot my fright. He asked me all about the people at home, the neighbors, the farm, and where I went to school, and who my schoolmates were. Then he asked me about mother and how she looked, and I was glad I could take her photograph from my bosom and show it to him. He said how thankful I ought to be that my mother still lived, and how if he were in my place he would try to make her a proud mother and never cause her a sorrow or a tear i cannot remember it all but every word was so kind he had said nothing yet about that dreadful next morning i thought it must be that he was so kind-hearted that he didn't like to speak of it but why did he say so much about my mother and my not causing her a sorrow or a tear when i knew that i must die the next morning but i supposed that was something that would have to go unexplained and so i determined to brace up and tell him that i did not feel a bit guilty and asked him wouldn't he fix it so that the firing party would not be from our regiment that was going to be the hardest of all to die by the hands of my comrades just as i was going to ask him this favor he stood up and he says to me my boy stand up here and look me in the face i did as he bade me my boy he said you are not going to be shot to-morrow i believe you when you tell me that you could not keep awake i am going to trust you and send you back to your regiment but i have been put to a good deal of trouble on your account i have had to come up here from washington when i have got a great deal to do and what i want to know is how are you going to pay my bill there was a great lump in my throat i could scarcely speak I had expected to die, you see, and had kind of got used to thinking that way. To have it all changed in a minute, but I got it crowded down and managed to say, I am grateful, Mr. Lincoln. I hope I am as grateful as ever a man can be to you for saving my life. But it comes upon me sudden and unexpected-like. I didn't lay out for it at all, but there is some way to pay you, and I will find it after a little.' 
there is the bounty and the savings bank i guess we could borrow some money on the mortgage of the farm there was my pay was something and if he would wait until payday i was sure the boys would help so i thought we could make it up if it wasn't more than five or six hundred dollars but it is a great deal more than that he said then i said i didn't see how but i was sure i would find some way if i lived then mr lincoln put his hands on my shoulders and looked into my face as if he was sorry and said my boy my bill is a very large one your friends cannot pay it nor your bounty nor the farm nor all your comrades there is only one man in all the world who can pay it and his name is william scott if from this day william scott does his duty so that if i was there when he comes to die he can look at me in the face as he does now and say i have kept my promise and i have done my duty as a soldier then my debt will be paid will you make that promise and try to keep it the promise was given thenceforward there never was such a soldier as william scott this is the record of the end it was after one of the awful battles of the peninsula he was shot all to pieces he said boys i shall never see another battle i suppose this would be my last i haven't much to say you all know what you can tell them at home about me i have tried to do the right thing if any of you ever have the chance i wish you would tell president lincoln that i have never forgotten the kind words he said to me at the jane bridge that i have tried to be a good soldier and true to the flag that i should have paid my whole debt to him if i had lived and that now when i know that i am dying i think of his kind face and thank him again because he gave me the chance to fall like a soldier in battle and not like a coward by the hands of my comrades what wonder that secretary sandon said as he gazed upon the tall form and kindly face as he lay there smitten down by the assassin's bullet there lies the most perfect ruler of men who ever lived End of part 13